Today's reading is from Romans chapter 12, verses 9 through 21. Let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good, love one another with brotherly affection, outdo one another in showing honor, do not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you. Life peaceably with all, beloved, never avenge yourselves. It is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if the enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will help, help keep, keep burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good job, Liam. What's up, everybody? How are you? It's good to be here with you, and it's my privilege to bring you uh, the word. Uh, Let me pray for us, and then we'll begin. Uh, Gracious Heavenly Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer, amen. All right, we continue our series in Romans 12, and here we see Paul changing his focus. Uh, Previously, uh, we've seen him detailing what genuine love looks like inside the church how we are supposed to love one another in here. Um, But we've reached a point in this passage where he now turns his attention outward towards our neighbor and even to our hostile neighbor. What does it look like to, to build bonds of love with them? What does it look like to express genuine the genuine love of the gospel in our neighborhoods uh, in the world Uh, Paul began his last section with a verse that just said let love be genuine and what we've said is that every exhortation that flowed out of that was really a facet of genuine love so let love be genuine what does that look like abhor what is evil hold fast to what is good Uh, Everything was a different aspect, and it filled out the picture of what genuine love was like. In the same way, in this section, he begins with a verse. Bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse them. And I want to argue that everything that comes after this, all the individual exhortations, are simply filling out what that means. What does it mean to bless your enemies? Well, it means to rejoice with those who rejoice, to weep with those who weep, to live 
in harmony with one another. Now, we shouldn't be sticklers about these distinctions. In other words, the love that we talked about earlier isn't just reserved for folks within the church, and our joy and tears are not only reserved for our enemies. Still, as Paul places these exhortations underneath this command to bless our enemies, it leaves us to ponder and to mull over and to reflect on how these particular commands, what they look like when they're directed towards um, our neighbor on the outside of the church. And so I just want to look at these first three directives Rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep, live in harmony with one another. That's what we're doing today. You ready? Here we go. Rejoice with those who rejoice. What does it mean to share joy with another person? Or what is its impact when that happens? I would argue that to rejoice with someone when they're rejoicing elevates the moment. It makes joy more intense so that whatever is causing that joy is felt more fully. Illustration. I once ran a marathon, but my family couldn't go with me. I traveled to do it. Um, I, I ran with my friends, but there was no one to greet me at the finish line. One of the hard, it was one of the hardest things I'd ever done, and there was a sense of accomplishment. Um, I've run the Lincoln Half Marathon I don't know how many times. And uh, one time I got my PR, and uh, Katie was there at the finish line. And when she saw me, she knew I had hit my mark. And she was just weeping. And so I was just weeping. The marathon was a lot harder. But just having someone there experiencing what I was experiencing elevated that moment and made it meaningful and so long lasting. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Think about the implications of that verse. That command could only be given by a God who wants joy to be experienced very deeply. By a God who wants joy to last. Who wants us to be happy. A God who created a world full of beauty and goodness. Stuff worthy of joy. Now, of course, the world is filled with so much suffering. Such suffering that's difficult to explain. Um, the infertile couple that's been praying for years for, for healing. The person who was healed of cancer, but then the cancer comes back. We live in a world full of mysterious sorrow. But we do live in a world that's also full of relentless beauty, mercy, and grace. Babies are born healthy every day. Marriages recover when divorce seemed inevitable. 
People wake up all the time with bodies that work. We can do work, brew coffee, take a walk, breathe in the air of the last few days of autumn, crunching leaves beneath our feet. We laugh, we dance, we heal. Cancer goes into remission. People recover from illness. Mangoes grow. (laughs) Gifts from God that we're called to celebrate when they are present. And celebrate when they're present in the life of others. The presence of these things speaks of God's goodness and beauty, and when true joys are present, he wants those things to be noticed, enjoyed, and for that enjoyment to linger and last. He wants it to be intense and drawn out. Rejoice with those who rejoice. We see this part of God's heart exemplified perfectly in the person of Jesus. Consider his calling card, his first miracle, the wedding at Cana. Um, This is the God who for his first miracle chose to take a party that was going sour and to make it last longer by taking 150 gallons of water and turning it into the most heady and delicious wine. So that those people could continue to rejoice. And it says that that was a sign of his glory. A sign that he was the world's true king. That was his first miracle. That was him introducing himself to the world. Later on he will say things like in John 10.10. When he says, the thief comes only to steal kill and destroy that's the devil but I have come that they may have life and have it to the full in reference to his teachings and commandments he says this these things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full And here he says, through his servant Paul, rejoice with those who rejoice. And in doing so, the only thing we can think is that he's sending us to be into the world to be so many little miracles of Cana. Like taking the world's joy and keeping the party going. The world needs this gift. Because in a fallen world, our joy is so often threatened. It's so fleeting. I am sure you've experienced how quickly life can level us. Partly because of the curse. And partly because there's still one who loves to steal, kill, and destroy our joy. Joy is fragile. And this is why the church is called to be the world's joy advocate. Uh, There's a beautiful Anglican prayer that uh, you can pray at night. I do. 
most nights from the daily office of Compline. And I just want to read it to you. It's beautiful, I think. It says, keep watch, dear Lord, with those who work or watch or weep this night. And give your angels charge over those who sleep. Tend the sick, Lord Christ. Give rest to the weary. Bless the dying. Soothe the suffering. Pity the afflicted. Shield the joyous. All for your love's sake. Um, It's a prayer asking God to care for the most vulnerable in the world. Those who find themselves in hardship. And notice the list. It says the sick, the weary, the dying, the suffering, the afflicted. But did you notice the last category? The joyous. And it said to shield the joyous. Because our joy is so vulnerable. It can so easily be taken away that it needs to be protected and shielded and stewarded. Isn't that beautiful? And I like to think that that's the idea at the heart of this command. To shield the joyous. In other words, to rejoice with those who rejoice doesn't always mean that you're the life of the party. It doesn't mean you're the, old, the one who shows up with the balloons. That's not what it was like for Jesus. Jesus brought joy by absorbing And shielding the world from a deeper sadness. From the wrath of God. Amongst other things. And so in the same way that we may shield a child from the fuller sadness of the world. To maintain their innocence. We block and shield for others. So that their joy may be more full and complete. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Isn't that a beautiful command? It's a hard one to do. One of the most profound signs of our fallenness is that we find it hard to be happy for other people. Shouldn't it be easy to be happy for another person? Why is it so difficult for us to be happy for one another? It's really hard sometimes, especially when what what the person is rejoicing over is something we want to have. When that person's joy reminds you of your pain and opens up a wound, you're single and everybody around you is getting married. You want to have a child so badly and everybody, it comes so easy for some people. This person's grown, kids are back for the holidays and yours haven't called in weeks. Someone else's church is growing. Yours has lost members. It's hard to be happy in those moments. It's much easier to be cynical and bitter and to try to publicly or more likely privately burst the bubble of someone else's gladness to find chinks in the armor of another person's good fortune. So they got a new car. Looks like they spent more than I would have spent on the car. Their church grew. They must not be preaching the real gospel. 
They must be preaching to itching ears. But isn't that our spirit? We are suspicious of the joys uh, and successes of another. And envy and cynicism, it shrivels our heart. And so what I want us to see is that the call to rejoice with those who rejoice is not only a call to shield the joys of others, it's a, it's a beautiful call to battle the envy in our hearts and to work to uproot what the author of Hebrews calls a root of bitterness that can spring up and bear all kinds of nasty fruit. When you work for joy, and it is work, you work to enlarge your hearts by, as Paul would say, doing nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, counting others more significant than ourselves. And if doing that is a fight with some of our friends, how much more so our enemies? Talk about a time when a person might be tempted to weep when someone else rejoices or to rejoice when they weep. And yet God doesn't put on the brakes. Paul actually places this command in the context of how we treat our enemy. It just reminds me of what, what Jesus called us to in Matthew chapter 5 when he said, You have heard it said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Listen to this, man. So that, why? So that you may be sons and daughters of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun shine on the evil and on the good. And he sends rain on the just and the unjust. It is an opportunity to reflect the Father's character and heart who gives good gifts to all kinds of people. And who has given us provision when we've been good and when we've been bad. What is, man, to reflect the Father's heart and character. What I want to say is, in practice, none of this is easy. None of it is clean. I remember when Kate and I, for eight years, we struggled with infertility. I remember how hard it was when a young couple would come up to me after the service and tell me they were pregnant. And I prayed with them. And I was happy with them and sad inside. And for Kate to go to those showers and bring the gifts. And she would go. Because joy deserves to be stewarded and shielded. But then she would come home and we would cry. And then we would remember that God is enough for us. And that he's calling us to shield the joy of others. And to battle envy in our hearts. And to display the Father's characters, character. And we're growing as a result. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Now weep with those who weep. Notice that it doesn't say be sad with those who are sad. He could have said that. He just said rejoice. But he says weep. And I think because weeping 
sums up everything that's wrong in the world. Weeping just sums it all up. Grief, frustration, disappointment, loss, stress, tragedy, disaster, death, regret, depression, lament, brokenness, abandonment, abandonment, all of it is expressed through the universal language of tears. And it's a language that we're all familiar with. And we shed our tears, haven't we? Even this year, I think about folks in our congregation shedding tears over infertility and miscarriage. Tears over the diagnosis we've received. Tears over the slander that's been spoken of us. Tears over the shame we've experienced. Tears over our pride and shame and sin and addiction and deceit. Tears of exhaustion. Tears of weariness. Tears of discouragement. Tears over divorce. Certainly tears over death. And some of you have buried a loved one this year. We shed our tears over we suffer after over what we've suffered as a world during this pandemic, all these tears. And in a world filled with so much weeping, this directive says something very precious about God's heart, doesn't it? That His desire is to draw close to a hurting world through you. To provide comfort and deep consolation and understanding through us he first did it through his son Jesus it's hard to think about what it is like to weep with those who weep without thinking about that scene in John chapter 11 where Jesus is weeping at the tomb of his friend Lazarus he goes there he loves Lazarus and here's the thing he's about to raise Lazarus from the dead but before he does he stops and he weeps why why weep if you will raise him the only reason he would have wept is because one he felt it (laughs) and because he wanted us to know That we never weep alone. And that those tears weren't just tears over this one man's death. But they were the tears of the God-man shed over everything that is broken and sad. In that moment, Jesus didn't only see the physical end of a friend's life. But the entire reality of human suffering. And the long night that all of us have to endure in this broken world. And he sat there and he wept with us and for us. It's the same beautiful idea about God's heart that the poet tries to capture in Psalm 56.8. This is just a precious verse. You have kept count of my tossings. That's when you can't sleep. He counts every time you turn back and forth. Put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? That every tear that we've shed is acknowledged by Him, kept by Him, shared with Him. 
It's a God that promises to do away with tears, but not in a way that doesn't recognize the journey of loss that each of us has been on, on our way to glory. Tish Harrison Warren has a wonderful book that came out this year, probably my favorite book of the year. It's called Prayer in the Night. And in it, she shares an insight into a wonderful verse in Revelation 21.4. And that's the verse where we're told that at the end of time, God will wipe every tear from people's eyes. That when we see God face to face, we will be made whole. There will be no more death, crying, nor pain. All things will be set right. But here's what she says. But not until we have One last long cry. Here's the quote. Redemption itself does not skip over the darkness, but demands that every last tear run. Christians believe that a place of eternal joy not only exists, but is more real than the diminished place of sorrow and pain. We now know. The image of God wiping away our tears could, of course, be a metaphor, a statement that all things will at last be well. But what if it's not just poetic language? What if, in the face of our Maker, we get one last chance to honor all the losses this life has brought? What if we can stand before God someday and hear our life stories told for the first time accurately and in their entirety with all the twists and turns and meanings we couldn't follow when we lived through them? What if the story included all the darkness of suffering, all the wounds we've received and given to others, all the horror of capital D death, and we get to weep? One last time with God himself. What if before we begin to live in a world where all things are made new, we weep with the one who is alone able to permanently wipe away our tears? I'll never read that passage the same. I love that. Our God doesn't short-circuit grief, not even for a moment, not even at the end. And it's so different from our culture where we're asked to move on so quickly. We don't like to feel pain. We'd rather distract ourselves to death rather than become more fully human by feeling the fuller sadness of it all. And so when it comes to grief or the grief of others, we want to manage it or minimize it. We live in a Kleenex culture where we want to wipe away pain and make it clean. And you can do this with aloe on your Kleenex. You can do it with a scented Kleenex. You can take your pain any way you like it. You can cover it with a pleasant scent. Numb it somehow. Dampen it somehow. Medicate it. Me, I eat my feelings. You can tell how stressed out I'm in. <laughs> I'm at by just how far my belly has expanded. We all have moment ways of getting through a day or a moment or a tra- 
tragedy, ways that don't always deal with the heart. And as a result, we have an incredible amount of of pain buried beneath the surface and unresolved grief and, and anger. And it's a mess and it's a problem. But here we find a God who does business with the heart. Who sits with us in the fuller sadness. Who doesn't short circuit legitimate grief. And who asks us to join in and to help it along. His gift to the world is a group, a group of people who would do this with folks. And not just with our loved ones again, but with our enemies. Remember the context. Bless those who persecute you. I think about all of the anger in the world. People will recognize that we live in a culture of outrage, but they will recognize it with outrage. I can't believe how outrageous this outrage cancel culture is. I'd rather cancel it. Can you believe it? It's so outrageous. Our response to outrage can't be to mimic the culture. The church's prophetic witness to an outrage culture is to recognize that behind anger, which is always a secondary emotion, is a whole mess of tears and pain. And to be the church is, is to be a people who know how to weep at the pain and injustice of the world, both past and present. To know the reality of our own sin and brokenness and how we've, and to discover how we've contributed to the mess. To learn to listen to the fear and sadness beneath the political vitriol and digital venom. While we may not agree with our opponent's, uh, opponent's point of view, we try as hard as we can to sympathize with their concerns and to identify their legitimate pain. We weep with those who weep. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. The last verse sums it all up. Live in harmony with one another. The Greek is simply to be of the same mind with one another. To be of one mind or to be of one heart. And our English translators have turned to the metaphor of music to get Paul's point across. To live in harmony. Now, music plays an important role in my life when I'm happy or sad. When you are experiencing true joy, the right song can enhance that experience, can it not? Little Taylor Swift at the right moment can lift the mood at the Los household <laughs> and at the Grenewald household, I'm sure. <laughs> In the same way, when I'm feeling sad, there's music that can help me along in the pain. To live in harmony is to not contribute a blues note to our neighbor's major chord moment, but to come alongside with just the right note to enhance their life. In the same way, when a situation calls for a chord in a minor key, we are the blues note that helps a person through their sorrow to remind them just how filled with sorrow and longing our praise is allowed to be this side of heaven. 
This is what the church is in the world. God's song to help highlight and steward the true joys and beauties. God's song to help the world work through its grief. And the theme of our song is Jesus. The giver of full life, the wiper of all tears. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Let me pray for us. Gracious Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this message. Most of all for your heart, that you are a God of joy. And you brought your Son, Jesus, to bring us joy in the full, abundant life. Uh, And we thank you, Lord, that you are also the wiper of tears. um, the, The Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, as it says in 2 Corinthians. You have been that for us in the person of Jesus. You have given us comfort, solidarity, sympathy, mercy. You have given us hope and salvation. You have have turned our sad song into joy so many times. And now you turn us out into the world to be your heart and to be your song. So that people can know joy to the full. So that people can know the comfort that's available to them in the Lord Jesus. And through our care of one another to point one another always to the heart of God. Father, would you make us those who rejoice with those who rejoice. And weep with those who weep. And live in harmony with all. We give you thanks and praise in Christ's name. Amen.